Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you back into the book of 1 Corinthians, and I'd like for you to find the 14th chapter. If you are a guest of ours this morning, perhaps you came to love on a graduate that's near and dear to you, or perhaps you're looking for a church, or maybe you just heard what I'm going to do this morning, and you wanted to come hear what we had to say at Church at the Mill. We've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians verse by verse for over a year. And several weeks ago, I finished the 13th chapter, Paul's great treatment of love. But then I skipped chapter 14, not for fear or trepidation, but because chapter 15 is a beautiful celebration of our resurrection. How could you not preach chapter 15 in and around Easter? And I told you that after I finished the Easter series and after Mother's Day, I was going to drop back, and I am. And beginning today, I'm going to do a three-part series, verse by verse, through chapter 14, on the issue of the spiritual gift of tongues or speaking in tongues. Now, whenever you approach a subject like this, I'm mindful of what my afternoon will involve. So at 2.30 today, I will teach a new members class. We do one a month, and by God's grace, we have about 50 folks a month join our church, and we are grateful for that. We wish all of you would walk to church because we have a parking issue, but outside of that, we're grateful for the growth. And I, like many of you, was raised in a much smaller church. In fact, I joke with the staff. That's where I'm headed when I retire. I'm going to get me a little country church with about 100 people where the hunting's good, and I can take care of everybody. I can sit on people's front porch and drink tea, and I can come see you when you get your bladder tacked and pray for you. I can't do any of that now. But growing up in that church, it was a Baptist church. Specifically, it was a church that partnered with other churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. So obviously, I was deeply influenced by Baptistic theology. I am unapologetically a Baptist today in my theology. And to be honest with you, most everyone I grew up with had been a Baptist all their life. Their mother was a Baptist, her mother was a Baptist, and her mother's mother was a Baptist buried outside in the cemetery and was probably going to return at the resurrection to the same place she sat on the pew every Sunday. And many of you who grew up in smaller churches had that same experience, but you could change the denominational name. Perhaps you grew up in a small Methodist church, a Presbyterian church, a Church of God church, an Assemblies of God church, a Church of Christ church, a Catholic church, a Lutheran church, a Episcopalian church. And over the years, as texts have allowed, I've tried to help you understand the differences and the commonalities within the denominational structure of Christianity. But today in that new member class, my favorite 30 minutes is when I ask everybody to share with us a little bit about themselves. And what will amaze you is that we have more people at Church at the Mill who did not grow up in a Baptist church than we do people who did. We have become very diverse in our reach, and I believe this is a sign of health. I actually believe that healthy churches 
across denominational labels are healthy because they do a few things at a high level. And when God's word is preached and when the worship is passionate and when people are made to feel welcome and when we try to engage your children and your students, people are drawn to that. And if they have any fears about a different denomination, those are usually quickly overcome if they feel the support and the love and the truth of God's Word. And invariably what that means is, is that every Sunday I have the privilege of preaching to people who grew up in a charismatic church, who grew up in and around the speaking of tongues in worship services. If you were to think about it in terms of a spectrum, I have people in our church who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, very liturgical, very ordered, set up, set up, Stand up, sit down, kneel down, go forward, come back. If you've ever been to a Catholic Mass, you'll know it's very ordered and very planned. This is called a liturgy, and our friends in the Episcopal Church and the Lutheran Church still follow a liturgical style of worship. And then I have folks who grew up in a church whose name is so long you can't remember it. The Upper Room Holy Ghost Transcendent Fire of the Apostolic Brotherhood World Outreach Center. You could just keep listening. Their services are not liturgical. And there is a great deal of activity. And at some times there's a great deal of chaos. And when you stand in a platform like this with a precious group of people you do well to recognize all of you come into this sermon with a preconceived exposure, a view of what you've heard, seen, or experienced about the gift of tongues. And this is why I'm thankful to be an expositor. My job this morning is not to stand up and give you my opinion. Let's see what the book says. Let's walk through this passage together and let's do it with an open heart, recognizing that no matter your background, you are valued here. And one of the things that we begin with is chapter 14. Now, chapter 14 is a reactionary chapter. Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, has to react to some things that are wrong in the church. The use of tongues in worship was not being done correctly in Corinth. In fact, the Corinthian worship services were out of order and out of line. And one of the things that we know is that Paul, as he deals with it, does so beautifully by not dismissing the spiritual gift. I fully believe in the gift of tongues. But making sure that the gift is exercised according to the will of God. Now, we can't teach everything about the gift of tongues in one sermon, which is why this is a three-week series, and I encourage you to go with me through it. But this morning, let's begin with the right approach. In fact, that's what I'll call the sermon, the right approach to this subject. And I just want to deal with the first 12 verses. If you have your copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy, as I prefer that you bring, or an app on your device, I want you to read with me silently as I read aloud. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he orders mysteries in the Spirit. 
On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. That word also means comfort. To console somebody is to comfort them. Verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or a harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, Strive to excel in the building up or in building up the church. How do we begin? First, we lead with love. I love the fact that at the beginning of a chapter that can be controversial and at very least can leave Christians lovingly disagreeing with one another, look what he says, the first two words. Pursue love. Why is love on his mind? Well, look up one line or two lines at the end of chapter 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is why I began by telling you this is not a divisive series. I'm not interested in condemning your past if you came from a charismatic background. I'm not interested in passing judgment on people in your life who may practice a manifestation of the gift of tongues that I personally would disagree with. There's no room for that. As I teach new members this afternoon, I will tell them, and if you're coming to the class, you don't get to skip the class even though I'm covering some of the content right now. I will tell them that there are secondary issues within Christianity that Christians can agree to disagree on. I'm not an Episcopal for secondary issues. I'm not a Lutheran for secondary issues. I believe in baptism by immersion in water. Therefore, I am not a Presbyterian. In other words, we have issues where we agree to disagree, but we recognize that those issues are not at the core of the saving faith. I know Presbyterians and Lutherans and Methodists and Assemblies of God members and members of other Pentecostal churches who deeply love the Lord Jesus, and I will be with them forever in heaven. And and so we lead with love. But that also means we lead with love in the exercise of any spiritual gift. Think about it this way. Any exercise of any gift that places self above others is either being misused, someone's ignorant about it, they don't understand it, or it's being abused. Now, let me go back to Corinth. When I describe Corinth, I'm not describing a current charismatic church. I'm not asked to speak on current charismatic churches. I'm talking about Corinth. In Corinth, in the Greco-Roman world, I've been teaching you that there's no shortage of spirituality and religion. Had you walked the streets of Corinth when Paul walked them, you have not found many atheists. 
you would have found people who worshiped all kinds of gods. We recognize in a Greco-Roman world, the roots of Greek mythology were right there in Corinth. And in those pagan worship services, it was commonplace for people to work themselves up into a a trance and to be in some meditative state that they believe connected them with the spiritual world. And often, this would involve chanting and the reciting of unrecognizable utterances. This happened in the pagan world. So when these Corinthians came to faith in Jesus, just like when you came to faith in Jesus, if you're here this morning and you're saved, when they came to faith in Jesus, they could not lop off or cut off or somehow commit spiritual amnesia and forget their past experiences. You know, when you come to the Lord, he forgives you of all of your sin, past, present, and future, but you still have to deal with the baggage of your past, with the scars of your past, with the lessons that you learned. And so most scholars believe, and I believe the text bears this out, that the worship services in Corinth had gotten out of hand. And that people were dipping back into the pagan exercises of shouting and speaking irrecognizable utterances. We know that they'd gotten out of hand with the Lord's Supper. We know that they'd gotten out of hand with tolerating sexual sin in the church. We dealt with that earlier. We know that they'd gotten out of hand with aligning themselves with certain spiritual leaders and creating a hierarchy of who's got the greater knowledge. They've begun to compare one another and contrast one another. So it stands to reason that there was a great misunderstanding of what the gift of tongues is. And this is why Paul says what he says. Let me just start with love and let me pursue that. But interestingly, the first verse of this chapter really provides the structure for the sermon. Look at verse 1 again. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Look at that middle phrase again. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. If I were Paul and I was writing to a church that had gone amok, that had been confused that there was chaos and people were shouting and speaking in unrecognizable utterances in the service and there was confusion, I might be tempted in my flesh to sort of downplay spiritual gifts. Unfortunately, in churches like ours, in traditional churches that do not necessarily exercise the spiritual gifts as understood by our charismatic brothers and sisters, that has been an overreaction, that that the church becomes scared to death of speaking about the Holy Spirit, that he might break out in a service and we won't know what to do, that the church be scared to death of educating their people on spiritual gifts. But notice Paul says, pursue love, and then it's okay to want every spiritual gift God has for you in your life, which is why I would say secondly, not only do we begin by leading with love, we continue to stay positive about spiritual gifts. The spiritual gift of tongues is not the enemy. The enemy is confusion and division over the exercise of the spiritual gift of tongues. Let's make sure we categorize it correctly. Notice what he says in verse 5, 5a. He says these words. He says, now I want all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Now, what is Paul saying? Paul's expressing 
his open affirmation of the spiritual gifts given to God. This reminded me of what Moses said of the people of the Old Testament. Some people were jealous that members were prophesying. Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord will put his spirit on them. You can't take verse 5 and make an argument that Paul means for every single one of us to have every single spiritual gift because that contradicts what he teaches in chapter 12 about spiritual gifts. What are spiritual gifts? Well, think about the term, spiritual gifts. The spiritual part means it's from God, and the gift means it's to bless us, not to tear us apart, not to confuse us. In fact, I gave you the best definition of spiritual gifts right out of God's Word a few weeks ago in chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, this is what the Bible says, to each that means all of us. Pastors are not the only ones that receive spiritual gifts. Small group leaders or vocalists certainly have gifts. But every Christian receives spiritual gifts. But what are they for? Manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In, in other words, any gift that does not build up and edify the church is out of line. It's out of line. And that's true for any manifestation or expression of what someone says is the gift of tongues. It's also true for prophecy. It's true for faith. It's true for healing. It's true for any spiritual gift listed in the Bible. And I don't believe the Bible attempts to list exhaustively every spiritual gift. I think we see different lists throughout the Scriptures. I shared that with you when we were in 1 Corinthians 12. But I also see gifts that manifest themselves in ways that Paul would not have understood. In this service today, there are about 20 people you don't see who are using their gift and technology to broadcast this service, record this service, make sure it sounds correctly, and with not much to work with up here, make sure the lighting does me every favor I need. People have all kinds of gifts that God gives them to use for the building up and the edification of the church. So with that said, I think it's important for us to think about this passage in terms of a positive understanding of spiritual gifts first. Now, when we think about that, I have to give you sort of a history. Where does the gift of tongues come from in our modern discussion? Now, this is a super, super summary. But there's a guy named John Wesley who's pretty important. He's very celebrated by our brothers and sisters in the Wesleyan Church and the Methodist Church. And he is seen by many as the father of the holiness movement. Now, God calls us all to be holy. But the holiness movement was this belief encouraged by John Wesley's teaching that a Christian could ascend to a state of sinlessness before death that you could turn your life over so much to the control of the Holy Spirit that at least he admitted the possibility of someone sinning no more. And those that followed that were known as holiness Christians. And then at about the turn of the century at a small Christian school in Topeka, Kansas, uh, 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 the president and the pastor of the church was teaching on Pentecost and the book of Acts, and an apparent miracle, this is according to Pentecostal theology, happened, where a woman prayed and had hands laid on her, and for the next three days, she only spoke in Chinese. 
And they saw this as a manifestation of the gift of tongues, which I actually, if it did occur, would agree that is the manifestation of the gift of tongues. But that led to what formed as Pentecostalism in the United States. Now, this is interesting, and I think this is important. I'm not saying this critically. I'm just telling you the truth. When you study church history, a lot of what we see in the charismatic movement doesn't show up to the 1900s. In other words, from the time the church is born all the way through the 1800s, we have no real movement like this, which leads us to question the validity of parts of it. Now, in Los Angeles, on Azusa Street, there was a revival that broke out in the early 1900s. If you study Pentecostalism or the Charismatic Movement, you're going to study the Azusa Street revivals. The difference is, is that Pentecostals really divided themselves into denominations. There are Pentecostal churches. There's the church, of course, that is the church of Pentecost. And there are churches that will identify. We are not evangelical churches. We are not mainline churches. We are a Pentecostal church. Some of them, many of them, protected Orthodox Christianity. When I say Orthodox, don't get that confused with Greek Orthodox. That's not what I mean. What I mean is Orthodox Christianity that affirms all the doctrines of Scripture that we believe are essential. For example, the Trinity, that God reveals himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. One group that you may know that's rather famous that rejected Orthodox would be our neighbors. They are not Orthodox Christians in the oneness Pentecostal church. They have a major problem with the Trinity, and therefore they would not line up with Orthodox Christianity. But many Pentecostals did defend the same beliefs that you and I would defend. And so Pentecostalism was born at the turn of the century. Now, in the 1960s, a new wave of Pentecostal exercises came to be known as the Charismatic Movement. Now, notice when it happened. In the 1960s. In the 1960s, when so many other things were changing, there was change amidst Pentecostals. The difference is the charismatic movement did not say we belong to this denomination. The charismatic movement began to infiltrate all denominations, and charismatics came out of churches like Baptist churches, Methodist churches, other churches, and they would say, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Methodist, I'm just a charismatic person. Now, they tend to gravitate toward charismatic churches, churches that openly practice what they call the public sign gifts. But there are many people who join churches like Church at the Mill who would say, I'm charismatic in my theology, and I recognize this church is not, but I believe in the preaching of God's Word, and I believe what we're doing, and so I'm willing to recognize that I can disagree with the leadership of the church in this matter and still join and fellowship. Some of you are in the room like that, and you know who you are, and I rejoice that I can partner with you in ministry and love you and I'm privileged to be your pastor. Now, whenever you think about a movement like this, you know somebody who's charismatic and deeply loves the Lord Jesus. This is why I think it's important that I'm going to be super biblical and at times critical about charismatic practices that are not lined up with Scripture. But that is not a criticism toward charismatic people. Because I can find plenty of Baptist people that are sinful and legalistic and judgmental and are lacking in passion and spirit. 
And so when we think about strengths and weaknesses, there's a theologian named Thomas Schreiner who does a great job of really balancing that. What did we gain? What do Christians gain from charismatics in the charismatic movement? Well, first of all, spirit-empowered preaching. Charismatics will not let you forget about the Holy Spirit. And that's good news. Jesus is your Savior, but the power to follow Jesus is through welcoming and enjoying the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Can I get a Baptist to say amen? We love the Holy Spirit. We don't dismiss him. Charismatics also brought into many churches a passion in worship. There are many of you who were duped into thinking we were charismatic because we worship passionately. Well, I thought this was. He's Baptist, but I like him. Sorry. There's a passion in worship in many charismatic churches, and I rejoice in that. I have preached in many dead Baptist churches, and I'm sitting there listening to about the third song thinking, how in the world am I going to resurrect the dead tonight in this service? But you put a preacher like me in a charismatic church, I'll kill myself. I won't know where to quit. You start clapping and amening, and we're going to miss lunch. Prayerfulness and praise in all things. Charismatics believe in the power of prayer, and it can be the worst day of your life. And they'll say, I just give God the glory. We just need to praise God in this moment. There's great joy in that. There's a missionary zeal. You find very few liberal charismatics. They believe in heaven and hell and Jesus and the blood and the cross, and they want people to be saved. And then they acknowledge the spiritual enemy that is against us. Our enemy, as I said last week, is not people in a confused agenda. Our enemy is the enemy and the spiritual powers he oversees, which are called demons in the Scripture. Charismatics will acknowledge that and not move off that. Those are great benefits. Now, what are some weaknesses? What are some criticisms? Well, one of them is elitism and sectarianism, which is really saying this. If you don't have that feeling of the Holy Spirit I have, you're missing out. That's very dangerous. That's not biblical. I found that very rare in our church. But I've come across charismatics who have said, well, Pastor, we love you. and We're just praying it happens in your life. And then you'll really understand. And then that leads to sectarianism, which means there are some charismatics who only read charismatics, who only listen to charismatics. They can't learn from other people. You'd be amazed at the diversity of the people I read to prepare sermons. I read a ton of Presbyterians and a ton of people from the charismatic movement as I study to to preach to you. It's good to make our reading broad. Another weakness is anti-intellectualism. In this age of we want the experience, I want to feel church, some charismatic churches move away from the clear teaching of Scripture. Just from my own observation, the people who came from a charismatic background to Church at the Mill, that's what they tell me. They say, I love the passion. I love what I learned about walking with Christ, but I needed more depth. I couldn't just go to an emotional experience every week. I needed someone to teach me what the Word of God says. And so there is this downplaying of being educated and engaging the mind. Illuminism is a new word for some of you. One of the weaknesses of the charismatic movement is that in their passionate zeal, they will speak as if things come to them that are equal to Scripture. So so a Baptist who wants to share their faith with their waitress would tell their pastor the next week, you know, as I was sitting there thinking about her life, I just felt really moved and led to share my faith with her. 
and a Baptist felt, well, amen. A charismatic will say, the Lord Jesus told me to tell you that you need to get saved. Now, again, it may be people using different words to ex- describe the same experience, but we need to be very careful walking around speaking to people as if we've heard the audible voice of God and that voice is on par with Scripture. That is a problem in the charismatic church that some charismatics have agreed with and taught against. And then, of course, there's conformism. I've met people who said, Pastor, I I grew up in that, and honestly, I spoke in tongues because I felt like everybody wanted me to, and I just repeated what I heard other people saying. Now, that's true in the Baptist church as well. This is why we don't baptize your kids when they tell us at five years old they're saved. It's why we wait at least to their eighth, second grade, and why they go through a class and why we make sure they understand. Does that mean we can guarantee that every child fully understands? I can't get into the mind of a child. But I don't want our children and our young people getting baptized because their cousin went down or getting baptized because their grandmother says, well, honey, I want you to not go to hell. I want our children to understand what they're doing. And the demonism is one where you'll see in some charismatic circles where they'll look at an issue and they'll come up with or they'll find some biblical reference to, well, there's a spirit of this there. There's a demon over here named this. Or that, that's really not alcoholism. That's a spirit of alcoholism. And so you have to be careful with that. And so I, I lay these out to you side by side. What are some of the beliefs in the charismatic movement as we get back to tongues? Charismatics usually believe in a second filling of the Holy Spirit. They would say you get saved, and then at a later date, you are baptized in the Spirit. I agree with half that. I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't find any scriptural evidence to separate the two. There are incidences in the book of Acts when the gospel is coming forth in the apostolic age where the apostles had to come in and verify that these people really understood the gospel and with them came the Holy Spirit. But what you find in the rest of Scripture and in the rest of Christian experience up until the 1900s is that people, when they are saved, receive the Holy Spirit. Also, charismatics often talk about a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, or proclaiming a word. They will speak a word over your life. There's nothing wrong with speaking words of encouragement over your life. You saw me do that with the graduates. But I can't go to someone and say, listen, I want to speak a word over your life. You will make $10,000 next month. I claim it in the name of Jesus. Not every charismatic is in the word of faith, prosperity, gospel movement. Let me say that again. Not every person who practices charismatic faith believes in the false gospel of the prosperity movement. But the place that the prosperity gospel movement has grown the quickest is inside of the charismatic movement. In other words, it was a breeding ground to take a false gospel into people seeking to speak words of faith over others and believing that somehow we have the power to speak things into existence. That's the word of faith movement. That's a false gospel. Now, also, the ability to instigate and possess miracle working power. Not every charismatic church practices this. I'm not suggesting that. We've seen abuses of it on televangelists where they bring people up and supposedly heal them right in front of everybody else. And this is the misuse of the gift of healing. 
being slain in the spirit. I don't know if you've seen those guys take their coats off and swing it in the whole front row fallout. Being slain in the spirit is something that, of course, has no scriptural basis, but the idea that you be overwhelmed with another measuring flow of the Holy Spirit. Unique and ever-present communication with God. I talked about that a few moments ago. Holy laughter. Most of my laughter is unholy, but holy laughter. Faith exercised through intercession to speak or to claim discerning evil spirits, and then, of course, the speaking in tongues. Now, again, I could walk you through those. I could show you bits and pieces of examples that have been taken to an extreme. I'm not suggesting that every charismatic affirms every one of those. I'm just trying to give you a picture of what our brothers and sisters in the charismatic church have been influenced by, and thus we get to the gift of tongues and the third and final division of this message. When it comes to gift, the gift of tongues... We have to give priority to prophecy. Look at verse 1 again. Look what verse 1 says. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. You know what you find in chapter 14? Chapter 14 is not a chapter just about the gift of tongues. Chapter 14 is a chapter about the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And Paul unashamedly says, make prophecy a priority. Why? Because clarity always trumps confusion. Clarity always trumps confusion. What is prophecy? Sam Storm defines it this way. A human report of divine revelation. Look what the passage says beginning in verse 3. He says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And so Paul differentiates the idea of communicating in a recognizable language or communicating in an unrecognizable language. Now, even prophecy is debated. In other words, I don't have the power, the ability, or the biblical grounds to get up, point one of you out, and make a prophecy about your life. I can take God's word and I can tell you based on your decisions what the consequences will be. I, I have had times in my life as your leader where God has given me a vision for something. I pictured this building long before it ever existed. I believed with all my heart we would be the church that we are today 20 years ago when God birthed the desire in me to become your pastor. But I didn't stand up and prophetically predict the square footage of the building and the debt retirement and all those things. And so I understand that people have some uncomfortable feelings about prophecy, but you shouldn't. There are three categories in the New Testament. One is that good old predictive prophecy where the apostles would predict that something would happen. The apostle Paul's on a ship and God says the ship's going to crash. And so Paul in Acts chapter 27 tells everybody, God told me to tell you that the ship's got to crash. That's his will, but we're all going to live. That's a prophecy, a predictive prophecy. If I'm on a ship and it's going to crash, I don't have the ability to stand up and prophesy that. Then there's the office of a prophet. Ephesians chapter 4 says it this way, and he gave the apostles and the prophets. These were those first century men and prophets, both men and women, who were given a special anointing of the Spirit to speak over God's people. And then quickly we find they're replaced by the evangelists and the shepherd teachers. Why do I not have to come up with prophecy? Because I got a book full of it. My, my job is to speak from what God has already spoken because the book has been fulfilled, it is inspired, it's infallible, and it's complete. 
And then there's the modern day exercise of prophecy, which is when someone gifted to speak over God's people does so under the Spirit's guidance, and it always aligns with the Word. And so Paul's saying, whenever the Word is taught, whenever a clear Word is given, the church is edified, the church is comforted, the church is built up, the church is strengthened. Now compare that with what's going on in Corinth. In Corinth, there's confusion, there's chaos, people are shouting, people are speaking in unrecognizable voices and utterances. Paul's comparing the two. And he says, prophecy's supreme. But he doesn't dismiss tongues. So what is tongues? Well, well, let me give you a biblical definition. The gift of tongues is the supernatural ability. It's from God. For one to speak a language, a language, a language that's discernible, previously unknown to the person speaking, in order to communicate the message of the gospel and anything that edifies the church and aligns with the Word of God. It must always be accompanied by the gift of interpretation. We actually see this in the Bible. We see it at Pentecost. So, so, so when Paul's preaching the great Pentecostal message, he quotes the prophet Joel. What does Joel say? And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Charismatics love this verse, and I do too. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. This is a messianic promise that when the Savior comes, Calvary's going to reverse Babel. Remember what Babel did? Babel created divisions over language. But the message of the gospel binds people together. And no sooner did Peter preach this message, guess what happened? The gift of tongues fell on the church, and listen to what took place. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Bible doesn't deny it. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. But here's why. Not because they were confused but because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So normal Galileans, normal Judeans, by the power of the Spirit, were able to make the gospel known in languages they didn't know, but their hearers knew. That, to me, is the most perfect picture of the gift of tongues. Calvary reversing Babel. Now, when we think about this, I believe we see it in this chapter. In fact, there's a differentiation between how Paul speaks about tongues, Acts chapter 2, and a tongue, which is an unrecognizable utterance that, that is happening in Corinth. There's a difference. Look, look at the screen. Look at this chart real quickly. So if you think about it, a tongue is referred to in verse 2, 4, 13, 14, and 19, always in a negative or self-serving way. Look at verse 2. He says in verse 2, the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. That doesn't serve the church. Verse 4, he says it again. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Look at verse 13. Again, I pointed out. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Nobody understood it. 
Look at verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I'm not engaging the mind. Now, look how he references tongues, plural, in 6, 18, 22, 23, and 29. In verse 6, now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge? Paul's saying there must be an interpretation of what I'm saying. Verse 18, again, points it out. I thank God that I speak in tongues, not a tongue, but tongues, known languages. Verse 19, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Notice how every time he mentions a tongue, it's negative or self-serving. And every time he uses the word tongues, he's referring to a known language. Uh, A real simple litmus test of this is to see other translations. Even the King James Version translated a tongue in an unknown tongue so that the editors would help you distinguish the two. So, shouting out unrecognizable utterances is not the gift of tongues. Speaking supernaturally in a language you don't know in order to communicate the gospel to someone is the gift of tongues, which is why I believe the greatest manifestation of the gift of tongues is on the mission field. It's when you meet people who say, I went into a village and there was a language barrier, but by God's grace, I began to communicate the gospel and they understood. And one of them who knew both languages translated that what I was saying is correct. The interpreter is present. Which all of a sudden makes you wonder, well, what about those people who say, okay, I get that this is tongues, but pastor, I have a private prayer language. What about a private prayer language? Is that different? Some people think verse 2 is a reference to that. Look at verse 2. Verse 2, when Paul says these words, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. I used to preach from the New American Standard Bible, great translation. It does not capitalize spirit there. And the reason is some editors think there's a strong argument. Paul's not saying that person is speaking according to the Holy Spirit. They're speaking from their soul, something that no one can understand other than God if there's any meaning to it. There's a lot of debate among Christians about the private prayer language. Here, here is what I lovingly share with people. Number one, chapter 14 is not about the misuse of the private prayer language, so I'm not going to take the series in a direction that the text doesn't. This is about the misuse in public worship. But two, they asked Jesus how to pray. Jesus, how do we pray? And he said, our Father who art in heaven. He prayed very clearly in their language. One of the concerns I have about promoting a private prayer language, thirdly, is that it almost um, communicates that you must have unrecognizable utterances in order to deeply commune with God, that God can't redeem your mind that you somehow have to go to a place spiritually that separates your mind from your spirit. That, that to me, can be a very dangerous place. Now, I know people say, well, Pastor, there are times when I don't know what to say. I've been there. I've been there where I've been praying to God, and I didn't know what to say. Well, Paul speaks to that, number four. In fact, in the book of Romans, what does he say? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we all But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So I, 
do not practice a private prayer language. I have people who love the Lord Jesus who do. I don't stand in condemnation of that. We don't teach that here nor promote that here. I think there are concerns, but I go back to what the text is about. The text is about the misuse of the confusing tongue in worship. And it just doesn't pass the litmus test. As we close, what's the litmus test? Anything that happens in worship, you can ask these questions. Does it serve in love or does it love on self? Am I doing this to draw attention to me or does this edify the church? Does it lead with clarity or confusion? Does it build up or break down? Does it correct or corrupt? And does it bond the church together or does it create groups within the church? Today, some of the most precious Christians I know will worship in the Church of God Church, Assemblies of God Church, Pentecostal churches. Some of the most precious God-loving people I know will be in a Methodist church. Some of them in those denominations that are going liberal are hanging on and praying and still standing for Jesus. I rejoice in fellowshipping with all Christians under the gospel of Christ and the word of God. But I also believe it's okay to be clear. Chapter 14 is clear. And you know what it encourages us to do? It doesn't encourage us, well, I got my stance. DJ explained it. I know where I am now. It encourages me to tell you, you better be speaking to the Lord. You need to speak to him clearly, convictionally, and let his word speak to you. And then speak clearly about him. I remember once I was counseling a woman who was raised in a tradition that told her if she didn't speak in tongues, she was not saved. And with tears in her eyes, she looked at me and she said, it's so good to know that my salvation is not based on any outward act. I'll never forget where she said, she said, but he saved me because I trusted him. That's the clear teaching of the gospel. Whether or not you have charismatic influences in your past, you are loved and welcomed and affirmed here. We need all of us to be together in the word. I want to just dismiss you this morning by praying over you. Let's pray together. Father, next week we'll take back up this chapter and we'll continue to walk through it. As we do, Father, I pray great grace on our lives as we understand what your word so clearly teaches. I'm so grateful for the people in my life who come from different traditions. I'm grateful for what I have learned from brothers and sisters who were deeply influenced by the charismatic movement. I'm grateful for the truth of your word and that I know where I stand and I'm thankful for the Baptist heritage of our church. I'm thankful for where we are. I'm thankful that our church has grown immensely and so there is room in this fellowship for people of all backgrounds because we come together under the authority of your word, the love of the gospel, and the power of your Holy Spirit that is alive and well and working in us today. We rejoice in that. And I pray for that person today who may be struggling. I pray they'd add one more stop to their exit of this campus. Inside our prayer room are some of the most passionate, 
powerful women and men of prayer I know. And they're waiting to talk with any person in this room that would like to take the next step in their faith. You may be thinking as you hear me pray, man, I'm not walking into a room full of strangers. Friend, you won't in the flesh, but I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if the Spirit had got a hold of your heart this morning, if you're dealing with something, then you go to that prayer room and you say, I need some help. And God will honor that. Father, thank you for the clear, wonderful gift of your word. Bless us as we go out from this place. In Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.